I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. For nearly 10 years, from 1977 to 1986, Saturday nights were filled with love. More specifically, they were filled with The Love Boat, the TV series that took viewers and numerous guest stars from both classic Hollywood and the present across the seas for comedic and dramatic stories, all centered around the theme of, you got it, love. The show stars Gavin McLeod straight from the Mary Tyler Moore show as Captain Steubing, Bernie Capel as Doc, Ted Lang as bartender Isaac, and Lauren Tews as cruise director Julie. And to reflect on all of them and the show as a whole, we've turned to journalist Jim Colucci, author of The Golden Girls Forever, who is currently writing the definitive book on The Love Boat, for which he's already interviewed over 200 people. Well, I guess, you know, it's kind of the best place to start, really, is that typical question of, for you, writing a book about The Love Boat, what was it about that show that said, hey, I'm doing this? Well, to decide what would be the topic of another book about television, for me to invest that many years in it, I mean, first of all, it has to be something I love and want to spend time with and think would be fun to really get into the nitty gritty of. And when I really thought about for my next book, what I would want to talk about it there, I have so many criteria and they're really kind of obvious criteria. It's not like I really am some deep thinker about what makes a great book. Um, first of all, it should be something that other people really enjoyed and would buy a book about, Right. but it should also be a show that, as I said, I can spend years with that. The cast is for the most part alive and amenable to interview because uh, there are some shows where unfortunately many of people who would have a good chunk of the story have passed on. And there are cases where there are casts where they've already done a definitive book, which is another big negative to do a show, to do a book. You don't want to follow in someone's footsteps, but in particularly the cast then would feel I've done this. I've invested this time. I don't want to do it again. Right. Or the cast has gone on to where they don't want to talk about the show anymore, or they're movie stars now and they don't talk television anymore. You never know. So, and what I learned from my Will and Grace book experience, as much as I love that and I'm proud of that book, it's really hard to catch a moving train. And book lead times are so long. You have to turn in a book like a year before it comes out. And television lead times are so short. They're still writing the season's finale a month before it airs or two months before it airs. So it's really hard to write a book about a show that's in production and stay in, in, in not out of date. And in fact, by the time your book comes out, it probably is, is already out of date. Yeah. So when I really looked at a list of shows that I would really want to spend time with, it wouldn't be a current show. It would be a show that hasn't been covered like Friends and Seinfeld, which of course are some of my favorites and I would have loved to have done. And it really just brought me back to the love boat. There was a moment too, and it's still happening, but it still keeps popping up in pop culture. But at that moment where I decided to do the love boat, there was a meme going around virally on Facebook and other social media where you could put yourself in the love boat opening credits. <laughs> and then there were people who would put, you know, they'd put characters from shows and actors who never were on the love boat in the opening credits, trying to find the most obscure one. Somebody had put divine in opening credits and then in the opening credits and somebody had put Chucky, the doll from, from child's play right. in the opening credits. And it was kind of like a, a viral contest among fans to see the weirdest love boat, fake love boat opening credits they could make. Right. And I thought that's a good sign that other people love this show. Like I love it. And, you know, I, 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 I'm so happy to spend time with it. I've really had a great time and found so much stuff that 
I didn't really know. And that gave me a new respect for the show because I used to respect it as a silly camp guilty pleasure. Right. And I still do. But now I have actual respect for some of the things they did. And uh, that's a joy to find when you're doing a book because it's one thing to write a camp fest and you could do a book that way. But it's another thing where you can do a camp fest and yet still put in stuff about how it was groundbreaking. Oh, sure. You know, and, and have you found the cast? They Have they been open? I mean, to interviews and stuff? Uh, almost. I've talked to almost everyone. They're all still alive and well, which right. is great. And I've talked to almost all of them. And, uh, and I've talked to uh, so far over 200 people. Oh, that's great. Cast, crew, guest stars, producers, wardrobe. It's just, it's, it's, it's a tricky book because it's a different muscle than writing about, maybe about a sitcom in general, but about particularly Will and Grace and the Golden Girls, the two shows that I've done because Will and Grace, first of all, was in production. Golden Girls, uh, is it was a show that has never stopped airing six times a day since it was first on. And so they're very fresh in people's minds, uh, more than the episodes of the love boat, which haven't been airing unfortunately as much. And also a sitcom is a different thing because if you are a guest star on a sitcom, you are probably one of very few, or maybe the only guest star you spend the entire week, probably in you know somewhat intense rehearsal with the main cast. You have your scenes in front of the audience. It's very memorable. And as I said, with the Golden Girls, nobody ever lets these guest stars forget they were on the Golden Girls. They're recognized for those guest roles to this day. Right. When you were on the Love Boat, it was different. You were one of eight or ten guest stars. You were in just one of the three vignettes within the episode you probably had scenes with only one or two of the main cast members. You were only there for a few days of the production week. Everybody would shoot the boardings and disembarkations on one day. There'd be a dining room day. There would be days when everybody would be there, but you wouldn't even be on set at the same time because if they were shooting your chunk of the dining room scene, other people could be offset and in their, in their dressing rooms and stuff. So I knew that I, I likened it and I was right about this part. I knew that doing a book about a sitcom would be like doing a 500 piece puzzle and doing a book about the love boat is like a 5,000 piece puzzle because the stories are so much more finely scattered among many more people. And you don't know who has a story until you get them on the phone. Yeah. So it's a treasure hunt because for the most part, people who went on the real love boat cruises, and that started happening and, you know, not in quite in the first season, but shortly after it became a hit have, have more stories because the people who went on real cruises really were bonded together as a cast over the course of a real week at sea. And they would spend some off hours together at dinner or in the clubs or whatever. So they did get to know each other and mingle more and have adventures on the high seas and in foreign ports as opposed to the people who did the soundstage shows, which, as I said, could just be a day here, a day there. Oh, sure. You know, now, how, how frequent, I mean, I'm jumping ahead here, but how much did that sure. happen where they took an actual cruise? Did that happen a lot? Or? They got into, yes, it did. They got into a rhythm, and I would have to look and see exactly when they started, because what happened was the show had three pilots, and the first pilot, and I, I'd have to look and see how much of the second or third pilot, but definitely the first pilot, was shot on a real princess ship that went to Mexico on one of the 
those LA to Mexico to Ensenada cruises that are just three days long or whatever. But the first one shot on a real ship. And after that, they would shoot sometimes, of course, they go to the port in San Pedro and shoot on the ship while it was docked. They would go to Mexico sometimes and shoot some exteriors on, on and around the ship while it was docked. And they would do the occasional scene that they would bank that would be out on at sea on a real ship. And they would kind of pepper those through the episodes for the season. They'd bank enough of them, and especially if they could have them written in advance. And you, so when you're watching some of the early episodes, you'll see those nighttime process shots where everybody's standing in front of like a, a moonlit sea that are clearly rear projection that in the same episode where you'll see a shot during the day that's clearly done on a moving ship at sea. So you'll think, did they shoot this at sea or not? There's a moment in the episode where it's clearly real and there's a moment where it's clearly a process shot. And it's because it's both. Right. Um, so, and so that's the way the show proceeded in the beginning. But in becoming a hit, they had a lot of leeway with the network. Aaron Spelling already had so much power with the network. And in making money and in getting ratings, they were able to really break out of the studio. And they started... Uh, at some point, and then it went this way through the end, where they would they would go out on exotic cruises, getting more and more exotic. They started with Alaska, and then they started branching out to the Caribbean, and then eventually went to Australia, the Mediterranean, uh, the, the Scandinavia, Japan, China. I think they were the first Western show to shoot in China, and really exotic ports of call, and they would do it by banking those episodes in really the off the off season for television production, which happens to be great months for cruising, which would be like April, May, June. So while the show was already wrapped for the previous season, they would go out and they would go on these exotic cruises and they do several of them back to back. So for example, the Japan, Hong Kong and China cruises are all separate episodes but they were all shot at the same time. Right. They would just fly one cast in, cruise part of it, fly that cast out, fly another cast in, cruise the next part segment of it. And so, and, and they would have to sometimes switch boats because in the, there were all kinds of convoluted reasons on screen why they were trading with another company and they were going to go on somebody else's boat. But in uh, off screen, in cases like Egypt, they're all the, uh, standard cruise ships are too large to go down the Nile. So they would trade with a, a small company and got a boat all to themselves to go down the Nile. And then in the uh, Mediterranean, they used a company called Stella, Stella Cruises. I think it was Stella Morris and Stella Solaris were the two boats. So there were all kinds of machinations behind the scenes. But it, what impressed me about that is not only did they bring those locations to American living rooms to a lot of people who couldn't afford or had never been to these places. So they really kind of opened our eyes. They also acted as cultural ambassadors to a lot of these places that got the love boat in their local television, maybe dubbed in their language, and then would be thrilled to see the production show up. And I think that that was a goodwill ambassadorship that these, this cast ended up taking on. Right. Um, but it was just, it, 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 and also by the way, they cheered us up in the winter doldrums when you'd see a Saturday night, you could escape the snow of New Jersey where I was and end up in either in Mexico or the Mediterranean or, you know, Australia it would be wonderful. So I, I think that they really ended up doing great work that way. And uh, those episodes would be saved generally as sweeps episodes, 
season openers and season finales. So you'd see they would they would bank them like April, May, June, and you'd end up seeing them like one of the, and they'd be often two parters. So they get two hours two hours out of every destination. So you'd see them in September as a two-parter. You'd see them in November as a two-parter. You'd see them in February as a two-parter and May as a two-parter. So they'd get like up to eight episodes out of doing that. And of course, had a wonderful time doing it, but it was such an innovative way to do it. They'd get big ratings for those for those cruise episodes. They'd promote the heck out of them. And uh, it, was, it was kind of a win-win all around. But it was a big investment for the network to allow them to make that. But that was big money back then. And Spelling did not, cheap out on anybody. He flew people first class. He allowed you to bring companion. I think big stars probably got to bring more than one companion, had a, a little mini entourage, but even his own employees, he brought almost everyone. They got to bring a companion. So uh, it, it was really an operation done of the kind of grandeur that Aaron Spelling and Doug Kramer were known for that you don't see as much today because of the money and other constraints. They really it, it's it, it that's why it's such an important one of the reasons for me it's such an important moment in time because of the way television was made and the way television was now spreading around the world and spreading American culture around the world where our repeats had always aired overseas but this was kind of a new level yeah you know and it almost is like as crazy as it sounds almost like a throw a Hollywood throwback in a way in the sense of grandeur maybe that went along yeah. with it well you're right and it was a Hollywood throwback literally too, because one of the magic things that I always loved about the show, and I knew that I would find when I started researching and I'm, and, and it's so true is that by virtue of the show, having been in production in the seventies and eighties, it was perfectly positioned to be on the cusp of two generations. And so they could show, they could, they could give early jobs to some of today's biggest, who are now today's biggest actors, Tom Hanks, Kathy Bates, Courtney Cox, Terry Hatcher, some people who became really big and started with small roles there. Now, Tom Hanks already was on Bosom Buddies, but some of those other people, in some cases, they were their first TV shows right. or first jobs ever in Terry Hatcher's case, first entertainment job ever. So you could get the young people, and then you also see them crossing paths with the giants of the silver screen who were still, for the most part, alive and well, although due to often ageism, they weren't working that much, and they wanted to. Right. And these shows... Aaron Spelling's shows in particular, Love Boat, Hotel, Fantasy Island, gave a lot of those really wonderful stars a chance to come back and take another bath. Sometimes they'd go on and do other stuff too, but sometimes it was almost coming out of retirement for one final bow in some cases. Yeah. And those people were so grateful for that opportunity and also grateful for, and this is where what you said, the grandeur being from the, the old days, they knew they would be taken care of by Aaron Spelling's company. Within, and Doug Kramer, who was a great old movie fan, within with the limits of possibility. And so they knew that the hair and makeup teams were top-notch. They knew that the wardrobe people would make them look their best. The lighting people, in fact, there was an, uh, a lighting guy they called Lippy, Irving Lipman, who had been known for lighting the old movies the, 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 of the 30s and 40s and 50s. And he would you know, set those lights, those like pin lights, and spend hours to make... Some, particularly the women who would be, you know, uh, worried about their appearances, look absolutely incredible. And so when these old stars would be approached, so many people who you would think would never have done television or would think, oh, I don't want to be on some cheesy show as America always viewed the love boat, would do it because they would get a first class 
trip somewhere sometimes. And even if they didn't leave the soundstage, they'd get first-class treatment and be adored. And that's why we have so many amazing stars of yesteryear captured like a time capsule in the love boat. And I love that. I mean, Olivia de Havilland was, and Joan Fontaine, her sister, did a separate episode. We had Louise Rayner, one of, some of the, one of the first Oscar winners ever, come right. to an episode. It's just, when you look at the list of the Ginger Rogers, I mean, I could go on, the sirens of the silver screen and the men of the silver screen. It's just funny. And then for me, it's funny because it's like a pop culture fever dream to see one of those people interacting with someone the likes of Chachi. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, wait, did I just dream that? Or did I, I mean, I don't know which literally episode he was in sure. one with the Hermione Gingold, I think, which is also hilarious that she was his grandmother supposedly. But I mean, you would literally see the likes of a, a Scott Bayo or a Christy McNichol or somebody who seemed so of the moment at the time interacting with one of the most famous women who'd ever been on the silver screen yeah. in the same episode. And you think, am I dreaming this? Right. Just crazy. Just crazy. So now you let's let's talk how this show came about. Sort of what's what was the I, the germ of the idea, and how did it evolve? I mean, I know it's based on a nonfiction book, from what I understand. But it is, it is. So a woman named Geraldine Saunders, who just passed away this year, at ninety five or ninety six, uh, was in her estimation, and other people have said this too. I, I just haven't literally proven it. The first female cruise director ever. And if you read her book, you see why that would be, that she would, if not the first, one of the first, and probably was the first. Because back in the days following World War II, cruising was really dying because the airplanes were where it's at. And cruising was viewed as old-fashioned and certainly took a lot longer if you used it as the actual transport to a destination rather than the destination itself. Right. And so there were few boats anyway. But then think about how women were treated back those days. And would a woman really want to subject herself to being on a boat full of male sailors and all of the dangers that could come with that? And in fact, Geraldine's book called The Love Boats, plural, is, yes, it's fun. And you can see in it that there's a great potential for a TV show. But when I read it, I found it kind of harrowing because there are many sexual assaults or near sexual assaults that take place in her book where a, a, a male coworker, a male sailor would take the, you know, would let himself into her room and hide in the shower for when she came home and then attack her or wait. Somebody would wait until she was walking down a narrow passageway and grab her. And unfortunately, when, if she did complain to the captain or to anyone else, their attitude would be, well, well that's why women shouldn't be on ships. And so you can see why it wasn't an attractive role for a woman. Jerry made the best of it because she was the ultimate. It's really fun. You get what a sense of a, you get a sense of what a character she was up until the very end when you read that book, because she was the epitome of fake it until you make it. She was a single mom, uh, and she you know had, had financial struggles. She got into this job, and she was supposed to, as part of her job, be able to speak all these foreign languages and be able to arrange ping pong tournaments and shore excursions and all this stuff and, and be able to physically do things like dance and play ping pong or whatever. And she didn't know how to do any of this stuff. And she just said she did and fig figured it out along the way. And there were cases where, as you'd see in the show, Julie would be in charge of the entertainment, which was a real duty of the cruise director. And if the entertainment flaked or something went wrong or whatever, Jerry would have to just come up with an act and get on stage and do something. Right. 
And so her book was fascinating that way. And what happened was Doug Kramer, who ends up being with Aaron Spelling, the, the executive producers of The Love Boat. But Doug Kramer had had a career at Paramount, and I believe at ABC and a few other places, as an executive. In fact, if you watch The Brady Bunch, you see his credit on The Brady Bunch yeah. when he was a Paramount executive. And he had also been one of the executive producers of Love American Style. And he wisely saw that that was such a great format, Love American Style. But it was different from The Love Boat. It was, of course, before The Love Boat, but it was different in that it did feature some regular or semi-regular players, but they would do these little blackout sketches between the main stories. They wouldn't be in the main story. Right. And the only other thing that was consistent was like a brass bed that would show up as a recurring motif. But the, the Love American style was just three separate stories. And when he, I think he always envisioned doing a different type of Love American style even after that show ended. And when he heard about Geraldine's book by reading about it in the paper, uh, he was like, this could be Love American style on a, on a cruise ship. And he kind of had a vision for how it could be a show. And he told a story that I'll tell in my book about how someone else had the same idea at the same time. And it was really a race to get to Geraldine and get the option on the book. Hmm. But Doug prevailed and uh, then ended up making a first pilot. And then eventually after the first and second pilots didn't, because of really because of casting they aired as tv movies and did really well in the ratings but abc kept saying it's not quite right to be a series it's not quite right aaron spelling joined with for the third pilot as did gavin mcleod just by by happenstance the mary tyler moore show had just ended right he was available and so he made the perfect captain and that third pilot is where it all clicked and all the casting worked and it went right to series but what did Aaron bring? I mean, you're saying Aaron joined, and that's what and I understand. It was accompanied by Gavin McLeod coming on at the same time. But what was the element that Aaron brought, do you think, that made the third movie so different than the first two? I think the first thing Aaron brought was clout, because I think it was really through his clout that they got a chance to take a third swing at the pilot. So that was the first thing, because Aaron was so successful with ABC already. But it was a fruitful part partnership. Aaron had been partnered with Leonard Goldberg and he, and in, in some of his earlier series. And then with Kramer, he, he, this was a new partnership. And Kramer is still alive and is an, a preeminent art collector and just an esthete. He has the finest taste in everything. I mean, Dynasty was his aesthetic. Right. And so I just think that it was just enlightening when, when Spelling met Kramer that Spelling had the cloud to say, let's do this again. Spelling had, of course, the experience in the business. Finding The way they cast Lauren Tweez was really through Spelling's knowledge and his kind of database of who had been on his shows and who had done well and you know young actors and stuff. And of course, as I said, casting was so imperative for that third pilot. So certainly Spelling brought clout, money, reputation for treating actors well, a database of actors. And then here he meets Kramer, who has this good idea and this really good taste. And and Aaron had good taste too, but you put them all together, and it just kind of all blended together the right way that third time. Right. In terms of the cast, I mean, obviously we had a, a pretty regular crew. I mean, some some people left and all, but were there any interesting stories about who came and and sort of what they brought to the show? Or I'm talking about the regulars. Well, so I'm not talking about the guests. Yeah, the regulars. Well, the regulars. If you look, as I said, at the first two. Uh, telefilms as yeah. they ended up being, but pilots in the first one, no one is the same. And in the second 
film, in the second pilot, they did cast uh, Fred Grandy, Ted Lange, and Bernie Capel. Okay. So they did get them. I believe Bernie uh, was in the second one. I actually have to look because Dick Van Patten played the role, the doctor role originally, but I think that even by the second one, he didn't do it. I have to verify that because okay. uh, I, I get confused who joined when. But I know that the point being that they did get Gopher and Isaac, and I think Doc for the second one, the point being that they, I know they didn't have the captain or Julie for the second one. And uh, those were the two roles that ended up proving the hardest. But they, it, 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 they were tough roles to, to fill because you had to, with someone like the captain, find someone who was authoritative like a captain, but also could be kind of a, what he proved to be later, more of a mushball in terms of the love theme of the show. And someone instantly likable who could convey that. And with Julie, she had to be have a girl next door kind of quality, which is very hard to find and capture. So they they didn't get that quote unquote right until the third film. Now I didn't think that the people in the first two films were bad. I liked particularly the cruise director women. I thought they were quirkier, quicker, quirkier, and more interesting. And in some cases, the writing was a little edgier for them. But it wasn't what we came to love. It so someone had a good eye, right? Absolutely. How does a show like that stay on the air without full? I mean, it's a formula, but how does it not become so formulaic that it like burns itself out in like three years? Well, the escapism is a really powerful tool that so many people I talk to. Well, first of all, the escapism, as I said, if it's February and you want to get away from your life for an hour on a Saturday night and watch someone in a bathing suit suntanning in Mexico. Right. So it's escapism from your life. There's certainly some titillation in that they always had beautiful people in bathing suits. Uh, so that's good. Uh, I, I also heard from so many people, both just regular viewers and people who were guest stars on the show who watched as fans that, and I, this was true of me as a kid, you tuned in on a Saturday night because you wanted to be like, I want to see who's on tonight. Oh my God, look at him. Oh my God, look at her. Oh, that's just great. So it was really kind of like a, a great surprise of what new permutation of all your favorite people would be in a love story. Yeah. And it, as escapism, you can't underestimate that, that. Now, they did take pains to keep it fresh so that it wouldn't grow stale. And that's why they went to ever more exotic ports of call in those special cruises. It's why in the ninth season, they shook things up, re-recording the theme song, adding the mermaids, these dancers. Uh, a few seasons earlier, they had added Ted McGinley as a new character, as Ace, the photographer. Right. So there was change along the way in an effort to keep it fresh. Um, and eventually, I think after nine seasons, it was starting to run its course. But that's a long time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was, a, And it really was the perfect one-two punch between that, I think, and Fantasy Island for Saturday nights. It was. And Fantasy Island had, you know, Stalin Kramer on it as well. And uh, it, yeah, it was a perfect combination and a very similar formula. Fantasy Island was darker and a little bit more sinister sometimes. Love Boat certainly didn't go for sinister very often. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a really powerful one-two punch. And in, on occasion, they would even, I mean, well, I can think of one occasion, I should say, they had a crossover where Lonnie Anderson's character went right from one show into the other. And so the shows were you know, somewhat coordinated and intended to be like this escapist two-hour block. Right. Absolutely. You know, I remember, did you ever see the first pilot for Fantasy Island? 
I did, but not in a while. What amazed me about it, you and I may have actually talked about this once before, is that in that first movie, Bill Bixby played a guy from, I guess, the Korean War or something who had murdered somebody, maybe Vietnam, and had murdered somebody. And he came to the Mm -hmm. island because he wanted another chance. So he comes to the island, he meets the same woman again, and in the end, he ends up strangling her again. So he's stuck in this endless loop. Oh, my God, it's dark compared to what Fantasy Island became. It's dark. Well, it's funny. One executive uh, whom I just interviewed who had worked at in current production at ABC at the time joked that they would do audience testing on the love boat in fantasy Island. And he stressed that they actually didn't test the love boat that often because it would always test positively. But when they would do something special, like a two hour episode that they'd spent a lot of money on, they might want some audience testing. So, but the love boat would always test well, but he said fantasy Island, would often test where the audience members would say, like, I'm confused. And he'd think, how are you confused by Fantasy Island? But I actually get that because Fantasy Island didn't have that same rhythm where everything's going to be 100% right at the end. It it would have some harder lessons learned or some darker moments along the way or for a kid like me at the time, get scary. Right. So, yeah, it's funny. They went well together, but one was kind of the uh, spoonful of sugar. And the other, and the other one might sometimes take you by surprise. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, you know. I was reading on Wikipedia before about Love Boat, uh, and I was going to ask you about sort of were there any like really particularly odd guests? But one of the ones that struck me was Charlie's Angels, as Charlie's Angels appeared on the show in a crossover. Yes, and I just saw the Charlie's Angels version of it uh, recently, where they're clearly filming on the Love Boat ship. But it wasn't with Love Boat characters. But yes, there was a crossover with Charlie's Angels. It's very confusing to, to remember which Charlie's Angels ones were just shot on the Love Boat sets, and then there was a Charlie's Angels crossover. But yeah, being another uh, Aaron Spelling show, they did do a crossover. And by the way, anybody who was on an Aaron Spelling show at the time, I shouldn't say anybody, but almost everybody from a certain point on, had it written in their contract that they had to do a Love Boat. Really? So, Yes. So I don't think the Charlie's Angels women did because that show was on first. However, they did get uh, Jacqueline Smith did do one of the earliest love boats, partly as a favor to Aaron uh-huh. and Shelley Hack did it. So several of them did do the love boat, but the dynasty stars all told me they had it in their contract. So Glinda Evans gladly did it. And she did some wonderful real destination cruises and she had a great time, but told me it was in her contract. Someone is wow. as, as big in television as her at that time. Isn't that amazing? I wonder if that's like the kind of contracts like the Marvel guys have, right? Where they show up in these little cameos sometimes. <laughs> what if it was the same kind yeah. of contract? It's like, all right, you're gonna, I know. That's you're going to, you got an eight picture deal, but you're going to have to also appear in a cameo in this movie. <laughs> yeah. In this movie, in this movie. And the, as the Marvel verse grows, you have to make a cameo here. Yeah. Exactly. Who knows? I don't know how their contracts work, no. but it's interesting that, uh, that that was, it shows what a priority the love boat was for Aaron among all the shows he had on the air. It certainly, he did a lot of work on all of them, but I don't know of any other sh- uh, shows that, that you had to go on if you did one of his shows. Absolutely. In in doing all the interviews you've done for the book so far, any particular revelations about the show, like that things that you may not have suspected that happened? Uh, there were always incidents. There was an, an incident that didn't get much press at the time, but it you can see it in the uh, in the episodes, if you watch for it, there was a moment when they were in Turkey at a party. They had been filming in the in the area and uh, in the Aegean, 
on a cruise and uh, someone, I think a Turkish government body of one of the towns wanted to throw a welcome reception for them, for the cast and crew. And they were at this party around a pool and the cast started to get the sense that something was weird because people were kind of pawing at them and they were getting uncomfortable. And it turns out that I think the government body had just invented, invited the general public, come meet the love boat stars. And people were really getting aggressive with them. Wow. So they, they were like, okay, let's get out of here. So Fred Grandy, Lauren Tweez, Lauren's boyfriend, and Ted Lange got into a cab with some balloons from the party. And they didn't realize, as who would, that in Turkey, I guess at the time, I don't know if it's true today, probably not, balloons are not filled with helium, but with hydrogen. Oh, shit. And they get in the car with these balloons, and Fred Grandy lights up a cigarette, (gasps) and the cab explodes. (gasps) And they were engulfed in a fireball. And Lauren was burned a little. Her boyfriend mostly escaped burns. Ted Lanch was in the front seat with the cabbie, and so his hair singed white. But Fred Grandy was burned severely. Really? His hands, his hands and his face. They actually didn't know if he was alive when, it, when, the, when the fire went out. And they rushed him back to the ship because they were in an area where they didn't know if they were doctors or hospitals or whatever. And they, they got him medical attention, but they weren't, didn't know if the show could go on. He was in agony for days. And being a trooper, he did continue to shoot the moment they needed him, really. But it's these episodes in Italy where, because again, as I said, they, they did back-to-back cruising. So they might have been in Turkey one minute, but then they were shooting in Italy. Right. And it's kind of a Prince and the Pauper storyline, if you look for it. But what's interesting is... They already, they luckily, the one thing where they lucked out, they already had this Prince and the Pauper storyline going. And the, the ships, the, the show's accountant, whose name was Scott, and I don't remember his last name at the moment, was like a dead ringer for Fred Grandy. And wow. so he already was supposed to be, and he was on the ship. So he was already supposed to be Fred's kind of stand in in the Prince and the Pauper storylines when they needed to have like the two of them on stage at the same, on set at the same time or in the right. same shot. Not that they couldn't just do a process shot with two of Fred's, sure. two Fred's, but like if they wanted one of them in the background, they could get away with putting this guy in the background because he was supposed to be a gardener at an Italian villa and they could have him in the background and have Fred in the foreground and, and have people remark how much they looked alike or whatever it was supposed to be. Um, so they already had that little advantage. But if you look in the episode, Fred is wearing white gloves, even as gopher. Huh. And, you know, as a gardener, you can get away with wearing gloves, but it's, as gopher, he's wearing gloves. And they had to write a line in about it where somebody says something like, go for why are you wearing gloves? And he says, oh, I have poison ivy. It's because he had severe third degree burns on his hands. What about his face? And his face too. In fact, they had to try to find special makeup they could put on him that wouldn't put him in further agony, wow. or, but not put him in makeup. They had to you know, try not to shine the lights on him because he was in such pain. Yeah. And yet he did it. Wow. That's amazing. So, the, you know, there were incidents like that. There was a fun story that I found that was in a tabloid that I want to go into further detail where, and this, obviously this was a story that production was very proud of. So they, they gave the tabloid this story, I'm sure, where the Lander sisters were on a cruise and they brought their boyfriends and their mom. And one of the Landers, I think it was Audrey, was on the dock with the mother, with their mother and they saw a dog. I don't know if he was being abused, but certainly neglected. Okay. And they bribed him away from the owner, I guess, who was like a dock hand. 
And we're like, good, we're rescuing this dog. And then they realized, what have we just done? We're on a cruise. We're in the Mediterranean. What, what do we do with a dog? And so they smuggled the dog on ship via some, what sound like some very Laurel and Hardy kind of <laughs> tactics, like literally putting the dog under a coat and walking on <laughs> ship with a squirming coat. And they had to keep the dog from the captain and, and really not let anyone, they had a dog because I, apparently it's very legal. I don't know, especially then before we had service dog designation. So right. the, it was a cute story because the, eventually the entire cast of the show and guest cast became complicit in rescuing this dog. <laughs> That's great. And the, the, even though Audrey said her stateroom was on the same hallway as the captain, and she said he must have heard that dog barking and just turned a blind eye. But the other people in the show would take, okay, I'll walk him on deck at night. Okay, I'll bathe him. You know, they they kind of divvied up the chores. And they they even got, Audrey was a, a recording star and, and who was particularly hot in Europe, luckily. And so she got her record label to send a vet to Germany when they docked uh, where they were going to get off the boat because Germany has such strict laws about uh, dog licenses. They got a vet to come on and falsify the records oh for the dog okay. so that they could take the dog off. And so it was really a group effort where this entire production company kind of had to break the laws and, uh, but all for a good cause to rescue this dog. And the dog eventually came back to LA and I think lived out the rest of his life with Bernie Capel and his wife. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's great. Very good. It's much better than yeah, somebody so I mean, being caught in an explosion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so there's, there's good and there's bad. So, you know, and there's, there's always stories about guest stars who didn't get along or whatever. Like I think the, the famous one everybody was telling me is Lana Turner and, and uh, Stuart Granger. Right. I always confuse Stuart and Farley Granger, whichever okay. one she was on with right. um, hated each other. And we're kind of sneering at each other and giving each other side eye. But I think kind of partly for comic effect right. through their whole, their whole cruise. So every once in a while, you got a fun, a fun gossipy story like yeah. that. But it really seems like it was a pretty harmonious set. Lauren Tweez was very open back in the day, particularly and, and now as well, about uh, being, you know, having been let go for having a drug problem right. and going to rehab. And she even did a TV Guide cover story about it. You know, there's probably a little more, bit more to it than that in terms of why she was fired and when and the timing and all that. But, you know, she's I, what I loved about talking with her is that, you know, as you know, when you do an interview and you have a sensitive topic to bring up, you kind of save it for last. Uh -huh. They get mad and hang up. <laughs> right. And so I was I'm sitting there thinking, how am I going to broach this? Because I normally wouldn't, of course, ask anybody about their their addictions. That's not my, my but because she got removed from the but show because of it, because because that was the story. And because she did this big TV guide, it's now part of the lore of the show. I have to talk about it. Right. So I was sitting there thinking, how am I going to broach this with her? And she brought it up and was completely open and honest and really brutally truthful and critical of herself uh, in, in ways that, uh, you know, when, when it was warranted. And I was, I respect her so much for that. I had, what, what a great time I ended up having talking with her. That's great. Seriously. You know, hey, it's good when you get into these books and people are willing to take the time and really be honest with you. I had that with my Battlestar book, Battlestar Galactica. Mm -hmm. It was amazing the amount of time people spent on the phone talking about this thing in depth. It was truly amazing. Well, the, the, the good-natured and smarter ones, I have to think, know that they're polishing their legacy. And, yeah. and with a, just an investment of an hour or two on the phone or in person, they are ending up producing a, a lasting printed record of the greatness that they achieved at one point in their lives. I, I don't understand why a star wouldn't do that. And when I encounter one who is, 
I get being shy or reluctant or maybe you've been burned by the press. I get that. But when people don't want to invest the time or be bothered or are dicks about it, I think, what's wrong with you? This yeah. is your legacy. Oh, yeah. And everybody else is doing it. Don't you want to be a part of this and share it? Well, I mean, right. That's the other thing. When everybody else is doing it, do you want their versions of it to go down in history and not yours? Yeah. That, and sometimes, you know, I've used that argument. I've worked with B. Arthur to say, yeah. you know, everybody else is telling the version of the story. Don't you want yours? Yeah, I, I, I don't get it. It's just the, the other thing is sometimes – I know you'll be shocked. Actors are not necessarily nice people. Some <gasps> of them, of many of them are, <laughs> many of them are, yes. but many of them are not. Yep. And I, I have interviewed people who I, I'm a pretty good judge of character and I've sensed you're not a nice person. Right. However, they're smart enough to be nice to me for the hour they sure. need to, so that I'll be write nice things about them. And that's what I, I, I actually respect that. I, I, there have been people where I've thought, you know what? You're not a nice person, probably, but you're an actor. And for an hour, you acted like a nice person. You took it on like an acting <laughs> right. challenge. And guess what? Now we're all happy. Yep. You know, earlier we talked about why the Love Boat appealed uh, back when it was on and why, you know, that escapism and all that stuff. Looking at it from 2019, when you look back at the Love Boat, what's your feeling about it? My feeling is that I'm happy. I, I now know more about it than the average person, and I'm happy to share with the world that what I've discovered because what the, on the plus side, I think if you say to anybody of a certain age and it's not that old an age, because a lot of us as kids use that as Saturday night babysitting, our parents went out and we watched that show. So I really think you only have to be about 40 or up to get this feeling. It just gives you a warm, fuzzy feeling because you just feel, Oh my God, that was my childhood. It was bright and sunny. It was campy. It was silly. It was, you, you get it just it's in a feeling and that with this book, that's going to be a little bit of a different muscle for me because I'm used to covering shows that are very verbal. The jokes are very witty with like when Will and Grace and Golden Girls, people know the, the, the moments in and out. I can talk about nitty gritty with Love Boat. I have to capture a feeling and that'll be very visual. So it'll be with a lot of photos. But I think that that's the baseline that you, people start with when you say the words Love Boat. But what I think I will also end up doing is giving them a new appreciation for this show when I remind them of all the greats who appeared on the show, all the greats who were behind the camera, who had such long storied Hollywood careers, the ways that they invented to shoot on ships. Remember, this was in the days before computers, email, mostly before computers, before email, before cell phones, and they managed to coordinate these things within an inch of their lives. They would find new ways to plug in cameras and lights on a moving ship with a limited power source. They would have to have generators that would sometimes get wet from a wave. They would have to find ways to fly daily back to get developed and, and viewed and then give that get input while they were at sea about what to change or whatever. It was, I, I, I compare it to, I was uh, as a journalist about 10 years ago, invited to go on the first leg of one of the seasons of the amazing race. And so I flew down to Brazil with them and did a few of the challenges that they were intended to do. Wow. And I marveled at what an intricate operation that is, how many moving pieces there are, how many producers, how many cameramen, how many contestants, how many flights and places where things could go wrong and delays and people running into each other who aren't supposed to. And it's so orchestrated within an inch of its life beautifully. But of course, that's done with technology. It's done with cell phones and emails. And the Love Boat did almost as much 
it wasn't quite as intricate because you didn't have to have people avoiding each other and running around, but it was still very intricate flying cast in and out and scouting locations and getting cameramen and crew there before you bust the cast in and all that. And they did it all analog. And so that's an appreciation that I have with the show. Uh, as I said, it's cultural significance in other countries and around the world and how it's still huge. In, somebody was just telling me that they were in the South of France only a few years ago. And in all these bars in Cannes, what all these bars in Cannes had in common is they all had photos of Ted Lange as Isaac behind the bar. <laughs> and this is in tw like 2018 or 2019. Wow. And so its significance, I think, is a lot greater than if you, if you think about it intellectually, then you would realize, because I think we all approach it emotionally, which is not a bad thing either. Absolutely. Well, you sound like a guy who's very excited to be doing this book, seriously. I am, and it, it's grown on me, because honestly, when I chose it, as I said, it, I knew it would be a tougher challenge, and I knew it would be a different muscle. And so, although I was happy to get the chance to do it, because who isn't happy to be paid to write about television? There are many worse things one could be doing. Yeah. I wasn't sold on thinking that I was going to fall in love with it. I was just going to be in like with it, I thought. And I've actually fallen in love with it. Before you sail off, please subscribe to this podcast, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star review. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.